And the reason was mainly that there was no challenge in it. And also, I could see my life planned out until I retired. It's just going to be like this. It's going to be like the last 10 years for the next 25 years, perhaps. You could retire at 55. I think for a full pension, maybe 60. And I thought, I, I don't want my life to be so predictable as that. And it's very, very easy. You know, it was an easy life. But I thought, no, I, I want more. There's more. I'm missing something. And so I thought, no, I'm going to leave. What am I going to do? I, I didn't want to be a technician anymore, but I didn't have any other skills. Didn't know what to do. I had no qualification. And I had a cousin in Canada who said, come over here. You may not be able to get a, a fancy fancy job, but the pay is much better. You're able to save money. And I'll sort of help you out for the first few weeks till you get settled. So I said, okay, I'm on my way. That's Gregory Nichols, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wokalik, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down with people to hear the pivotal and life-changing moments that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Gregory was born in Birmingham, England, during the Second World War. And after suffering the death of his mother at quite a young age, a challenging childhood would follow. As he entered his late teens, he would join the Royal Air Force, and a career in the military for the next decade would be his. Around the age of 30, a desire for something more in life led Gregory to move to Canada. He chose to invest some of his spare time in going to university, and this eventually would shift his life in a direction that he never would have predicted. Gregory's going to talk about these experiences as well as what it was like being a farmer in Ireland for about five years, teaching, and why donkeys are such great animals. All that and so much more in a pretty revealing interview that upon listening back the second time while I was doing the edit for this, I just want to mention that in the first third of this interview or so, Gregory gets pretty real about what things were like for him growing up. I really value the fact that he took the opportunity to just be so open and honest about what his experience was like growing up. And having known Gregory for probably about a decade now, uh, this was such an amazing experience for me to get to understand who he is more as a person. I really value what he had to share, and I am sure you will as well too. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in a second. But before we get started, I want to let you know about something I'm doing, and that's recording people's oral histories for them. Through doing this podcast over the last number of years, I've really come to realize the importance of people documenting their life history. If you've ever thought about recording your own or family member's story, this could be of interest to you. Your personal reflections, lessons learned, family history, life experiences, and whatever else you'd like to talk about for current family members and future generations to cherish. If there's something amazing I've discovered in the process of doing these with people, it's that it's not exactly what people say that is of the greatest importance. It's how people say things. When I've been listening back to recordings that I edit for people, it becomes so clear as time goes on just what that person is truly like. Through the way that stories are told and how people choose to tell them really gives a unique perspective as to the character of an individual that, in my mind, can't really be captured through writing in the same way. I truly believe that everyone has stories worth preserving and wisdoms to share. So if this is of interest to you, you can find out more by emailing me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. 
That's all one word, my audio memoir at outlook.com. Thank you very much for listening to that. And now a little bit of music and then my interview with Gregory Nichols. Gregory, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Totally. Uh, to give context to everybody listening, I love to say what's going on currently. So currently, it is a Sunday afternoon at the beginning of the month of April. It's kind of a bright, sunny day, but cold out. And how's your day been so far? So far, uneventful. As I said, I, I uh, had a serious conversation with Julia this morning, which seemed to take most of the time until I came here. Otherwise, I would have been out working on the garden, which we're putting in. And this is your uh, your wife, Julia. And, uh, That's right. Okay, and so you you uh, have started building a garden at your property, you told me, before we started. That's right, yeah. And it's, of course, it's built on rock. And uh, so uh, I'm starting right from the beginning, and that meant digging trenches to putting irrigation and uh, filling the trenches in again, and, uh, always working with rock, putting a fence around it and putting posts into rock. So uh, I'll be glad when it's done. And we're looking forward to having a garden, which we haven't had for the last perhaps four years since we've been in this house. Okay. So this is going to be like something great to be able oh, to have a garden I'm again. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. What are you most looking forward to planting and then harvesting, do you think? Well, lots of uh, things like kale and lettuce and tomatoes, especially tomatoes. And we might even try uh, onions again, which we didn't have much luck with in the past, and beans. We love scarlet runner beans. Uh, we love the look of them. We love the way the hummingbirds come to them, and we love eating them, of course. And uh, garlic. We always grew a lot of garlic, and I, m I miss having my own garlic. So those are some of the really important things that we're going to grow. Yeah, totally. A long list of, uh, of things. It's hard to mm. pin down just one because mm. uh, having mm. a garden, there's so many things you can grow and so many oh, yeah. great things to have. So the, uh, the first traditional question of this podcast we're going to uh, jump into, and that is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island? Well, I was living in Ontario, in Toronto, and for, uh, I got into the habit of, of going, taking a canoe up onto a lake and a tent and camping and portaging and do it every year. And one year I thought, you know, I've never visited another province in Canada. And I forget how long I'd been here by that time, but some years. And I thought, this is ridiculous. It's such a big country. Where will I go? So, of course, I, I chose the far west coast for some reason. I forget my motivation. And planned out, brought bikes over on the plane, which you could do then. And uh, started cycling up this nice little road on Vancouver Island, which I thought was a nice little coastal meandering road and turned out to be the island highway and realized after a while that all these logging trucks going past were going to be there every day and then the next day and the next day. And it wasn't very pleasant. So I got the map out and I thought, where can we ask can we go? And I saw these Gulf Islands. Let's try those islands. And so we came to Maine and Saturna and Panda. 
And at one point, the thing that really did it for me is I stopped at this road junction on the bike and I'd been stopped for 30 seconds and a car pulled up and says, do you need help? And I thought, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to live here. I'd been in the city. Not everybody's unfriendly in the city, but I remember turning to someone when I was on the sidewalk and, and saying, oh, excuse me, and having the person brush straight past me without even looking at me. And then I came to Panzer and I said, wow, I want to live here. While I was on that holiday, I made an offer on a piece of property already on Panzer and thought, I'll just come here for the summer. And uh, then went back and then various things happened and I decided just to move here. And... Um, I have never regretted that was 30 years ago. Okay. So somebody's stopping to offer you some help out of the blue. And that really sounds like that deeply affected you. It did. Very. Yeah. Was it something that hadn't happened? Because I know you said that it wasn't happening in Toronto before, but was that something pretty unique in your life in general? Not just... in my life. And I, I think it, it's also a matter of place where you are in the city and the countryside is obviously different. But growing up in, in England, anybody would stop and help you and give directions uh, or whatever, tell you the time, point you to the nearest pub. And I'd, I'd sort of miss that in the big cities in especially Toronto, I think which seemed a little cold. And I, I understood it after a while because I think people felt vulnerable. They, if you tried to stop them, they didn't know what they were getting into. And also, of course, some of them were in a hurry. And you might have had problems that they didn't want to get into and take on. So they, they didn't know, and I didn't realize that. So at the time, it was saddening that, that things like that happened. Okay. So so that moment made you remember some experiences that you had in the past growing up and you've been missing. Oh, yes. Yeah. People would go out of their way to help you sometimes. Too, too much sometimes, actually. When I was a little kid, my mother, who had to go into the city, and we lived on the edge of Birmingham, said, when you come from school, I was probably about five, uh, she said, stand on the corner there. It was quite near our home near the store here and wait for me and I won't be long. And while I was standing there, a woman came along who knew me, knew my mother, and she said, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm going into town, into the city, come with me. And I said, my mom told me to stand here. And she said, well, no, 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 that's ridiculous. And not that things were dangerous in those days. Kids often ran around the streets on their own. And so I went with her and I got on the tram and after a few stops, she said, oh, I think I just saw your mother on the tram going the other way. I think you'd better get off and go back. So I, uh, she says, here's a penny for the fare. Just cross the road and get. So I stood at the, the tram stop. And of course, I'm five years old. And I put up my hand to stop the tram coming along. And he just sailed past. He's not going to stop for a five-year-old. This is just a kid playing around. And the next tram came along too. And the next one. And I started crying. And... Within a few minutes, someone said, what are you crying about? And I s explained, and the person said, well, I'll stop a tram for you. And he stopped the tram, and he took me over to the tram and said, okay, climb on. And he explained to the person selling the tickets, okay, this kid needs to be on the tram. And 
people would just do that. They'd notice a kid crying and they'd step in and help. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's only so many experiences we remember from being young, you know, being the age of five, that uh, obviously that one that you uh, just mentioned stands out very clearly mm -hmm. to you. People helping. Let's let's talk more about uh, your beginnings in life and where you grew up and uh, some of your early childhood experiences. Uh, so you said that you grew up in Birmingham, That's England. That's right. Yeah. Could you tell myself and listeners a bit about what Birmingham was like and uh, what your oh. childhood was like a little bit? Back then, well, try to be brief. Um, Birmingham was the second largest city uh, in England, uh, in the UK, I suppose, uh, after London. It was an industrial city. Uh, it wasn't a city for entertainment. Um, you could go downtown Birmingham at 10 o'clock at night and you wouldn't see many people. Almost everything would be closed. The pubs at that time closed at 10 o'clock. Restaurants would be closed. So that was the kind of city. But I lived on the something like what you call the suburbs, I suppose. But it wasn't like the suburbs we tend to think about, which is 10,000 houses and you have to get in your car to go anywhere. It was the suburbs where... You could go down the street and there was a greengrocer's and there was a bread store and the hairdressers and things like that. So there'd be a shopping area very close. And um, so that's where I grew up in a subsidized rental housing. Uh, it was privately owned, but subsidized, I guess, because my father could afford to pay the rent, uh, although he was an unskilled man. And my mother didn't have a paid job. And we managed uh, somehow in those days. It was just after the war. So I was born in the middle of the Second World War. And so the end of the war, I would have been four years old. And, uh, you know, you grow up and that's the world you know. You don't question very much about it. Uh, and you just take things for granted. Birmingham, there wouldn't have been any chain restaurants there at all. There were stores that sold clothing and shoes and things, you know, department stores, they call them. There may have been two or three in the chain of stores, uh, but that would be it. You wouldn't get them all over England. You wouldn't see that many cars, of course, because almost no working class people and even some middle class people didn't own cars. They couldn't afford to run cars. And so everybody used the bus or the, the tram uh, or walked or sometimes bicycles. Uh, most of my teachers bicycled to work in, when I was in high school. So, yeah, that was what it was like. My father came from a family. I think there were maybe five in it. Nobody I knew had a university education, even when later on in my teenage years, I never met anybody except my teachers who had a university education. It just didn't happen. My... Mother, I, I realize now, uh, a woman who never got over the death of my sister, who died when she was four, and I was three years old, she died of meningitis, and that was very unpleasant while she was dying, and my mother was totally distraught when she died, to the extent that she couldn't believe she was dead. And in desperation, my father had a coffin exhumed and they dug it up and said there's the coffin she that's where she is you're going to believe she's dead but we're not going to open the coffin you, you know this wouldn't be very pleasant 
So she did finally accept that her daughter was dead. But she was unhappy for many, many years. I don't think she ever quite got over it. And she also had a very troubled childhood, which I only know from a few things that I learned then and uh, later that I, I knew at the time that she, I never knew her parents. She wouldn't talk about them. She wouldn't talk about her childhood. She wouldn't even tell me what her maiden name was. Um, and later I started to do some speculation about what all that was about, why it w had been such an awful time. And she and my father tried to have more children after my sister died, but uh, all the children died at birth, basically. And the doctors diagnosed this with this incompatibility in the blood, which is, uh, I forget what they call it now. They had a name for it in those days called the blue baby syndrome, where the, the baby would look blue because of the uh, blood not circulating. And apparently you could have possibly one child that would live if you if you had that blood incompatibility between the parents but the rest they wouldn't live and my father didn't believe the doctors because he said look i had two children who lived one till four okay she died but then the other one's still alive so you must be wrong never crossed his mind that perhaps he wasn't the father of the first child which it didn't cross my mind until I was an adult and I looked back and thought about those things. And I also thought about, I, I had heard in conversation as a little child that my mother's father was um, used to beat his sons and he was a very brutal man. He used to drink a lot and come home. And, and then I, of course, the next thing that occurred to me was was my mother sexually abused by her father, which is a possibility, and maybe that was his child. Or it could also, I suppose, have been somebody else's child. But anyway, my, that's part of what was wrong with my mother. As you, as you know, if you're sexually abused when you're young, you know, there's often, it's very difficult to get over it. There's often suicide involved or thoughts of suicide. Uh, and I did walk in one day when I was probably four or five, and found my mother in the kitchen with her head in the gas oven. And uh, she she survived that one because you had to feed the, the gas with a, through a meter by putting a penny in this meter, and the penny had, probably, I think, run out before she died. And the, the, the interesting thing about memory there is that I forgot that. I forgot it for many, many years. And I think I was in my late teens, when that memory came back to me. And the other odd thing is I said to my father next time I saw him, did my mother ever try to commit suicide? And he said, no, she didn't. But my memory was absolutely clear. Uh, I had no doubt about it that she did. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> mentioning these things and talking about these things. These are all very heavy subjects, and I appreciate you feeling comfortable enough to talk about these things. That's uh, very serious stuff, clearly. So how did things wind up uh, un unfolding for your mother after that experience that you said at the age of five that you remembered? Well, at the age of six, my father managed to get um, to move out of that house, which didn't have happy memories. 
And we moved into a, a new prefab house, which was built by German prisoners of war uh, in another area of the city on the suburbs. And we lived there more or less happily, I suppose, until I was nine when my mother died. She was 30 when she died, tuberculosis, and was sick for a while before, of course, she died. And, uh, and then my father met someone else and we moved again. Yes, so there was a fair bit of moving. And I'm sorry, did you say tuberculosis? Was... Yes, that was just before they found ways to treat it. Another year, maybe they could have saved a life. What can you remember as being a child in that circumstance? Because uh, you're uh, you know, a single child. You don't have any siblings at this point, and your, your mother is quite ill. Do you remember much from those experiences? Or Well, I remember they put up a single bed in the living room where she spent the day, and then she, my father carried her into the bedroom at night. And I remember her lying there doing crossword puzzles. She didn't read, but... She did crossword puzzles, and I didn't know she was going to die. Uh, and so I, I often wonder how she felt because I, I, in conversation, I would say, well, when mum's better, we'll do this, and maybe when mum's better, we'll do that. And they knew she wasn't going to get better. She was just getting worse all the time. I didn't know she was going to die till the day she died, and my, <laughs> and my father told me. It was quite a shock yeah that's devastating absolutely devastating mm. uh my dad passed away when i was 18 and mm. uh you know i was obviously quite a bit older than you were but it's uh it's super tough mm. having a parent die and having having a parent die when you're as young that's as young. you were mm -hmm. you said age nine yeah 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 so then it's you and your dad after that uh, mm -hmm. time, and um, I'm sure that was not very easy. Um, actually, it wasn't bad at all. Uh, it wasn't that bad for me to be alone. I was at school. I'd come home. I'd run around the streets with the other kids, and my father would come home, and we'd have a bite to eat. And It wasn't bad, uh, but it was n not good for him because he had to work full time, try to raise a child, do all the housework, cook everything and he was still a young man i mean he was 30 as well 30 or 31 and so he was looking for a, another partner which he found and at first that wasn't too bad but it fairly quickly deteriorated the, my relationship with her and just got actually progressively worse until finally when i was 16 she kicked me out of the house which was actually a relief, I think. <laughs> I, yeah. So, uh, yeah, those weren't good years. But I think that's a pretty common story. That they weren't good years for a lot of people because... Uh, yeah, um, well, for, maybe for kids, particularly with stepmothers or stepfathers, I don't know. It's Some people have very good stepparents. Uh, a lot don't, I think. But it, it, just going through teenage years can be... Uh, pretty difficult and I, I, I didn't really have a teenage life it was not like anybody else's you know there, were, there was no question of rebelling so i more or less did what i was told and tried to keep out of the way why was there no question of rebelling well my stepmother ruled the home 
And it came to the point where I was expected to be at school or in bed or outside of the house. Uh, I wasn't allowed to use a living room. I didn't eat with the rest of the family. They had two daughters during this time. And so the, those were the rules. And, you know, it wasn't, simply wasn't much of a life. I mean, I didn't go places. I didn't, I, I, we, we had no TV for a long time. When we did, I wasn't allowed to watch it, of course. So kids at school would talk about the TV programs they'd seen or the music they'd listened to. I wasn't allowed to. It was a living room where the radio was, and, and I couldn't join in those kinds of conversations. And I also was talking to somebody else about this, had the assumption, I made the assumption that everybody, every other kid's life was normal, and they lived in this reasonably happy family with two parents who cared about them, and I was the odd one out, and I didn't tell anybody about it, and because I didn't want and to pity me, that, that makes you an outsider. It takes away a lot of, what, self-esteem or something to be pitied. Uh, so also I had to keep, and we didn't have things like school counselors in those days, uh, which is interesting because Julia is a school counselor and she tells me stories about some of the troubled kids that she had to uh, try and deal with. So, but we had nothing like that. There were no such things as counselors. I had nobody to turn to, to talk to about it. Yeah, this sounds brutal. This sounds like a super isolated experience and uh, yeah, like having a stepmother who's obviously, by everything you're saying, not being very nice. <laughs> well, not nice to me anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, and well, the other part was that because I, I sort of passed the exam and I was about 11 to go to grammar school, which was I had to take two buses to get there and all the other kids in the area didn't pass, and they just went to the local schools. So uh, I, I kind of was out of the group then, and I was really on my own. And uh, so I had to make up things to do at weekends, where I would go, what walks I would go. Fortunately, we lived on the right on the edge of the city, and there were places to walk to, that you could plan a walk, a solitary walk, on the Saturday and another one Sunday. And, but... It's amazing what kids can get used to. You know, you know you're not really happy, but you sort of get used. Well, this is my life. <laughs> you know, I have to do the best I can. Totally. I, just out of curiosity, what was your relationship with your father like during this point? Basically, I wasn't allowed to talk to him. He was out at work all day. By the time he got home, I would have eaten my jam sandwiches and I'd be out either in my room doing my homework or out on the street looking for something to do walking around until bedtime. So uh, we lived in a fairly small house. I could go for several days without even seeing him, without passing him anywhere in the house. So <laughs> we, there wasn't any, basically. But you, you actually were told not to talk to your dad? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, again, thank you for sharing this. It's like very in insightful to understand more about someone's experience. Like, and these, uh, this sounds tough. Uh, so actually two questions. You said that you went to grammar or grammarcy school? Grammar school. Grammar yeah. school. Okay. And so what is grammar school? Well, it's supposedly, uh, a school. I mean, you have to pass an exam to, to go there. It's, they don't have them anymore. And, it gives you more of an academic education 
I, I did actually have, so, I think about seven weeks at the local school because just at the time I was due to start grammar school, my father got sick and he was off work for, I think, almost a year. And the thing about grammar school is you had to wear a school uniform. And if he didn't have a uniform, couldn't go. And he couldn't afford a uniform. He was in hospital for quite a while. And so I went to the local school where they didn't seem to be making much attempt to teach anybody. Maybe it must have been a particularly bad school. They called it comprehensive school, whatever that meant. But they didn't seem to make any attempt to teach us, which was frustrating for me. Um, then I got to go to the grammar school where you have, you know, every, er, er, you know, there's math and French and history and geography and all that sort of stuff, regular periods. And, and they, they did make an attempt to teach you, but curricula were very bad. The teachers were not inspired. Uh, they were doing the same thing year after year after year. A lot of them were quite old and obviously just bored with what they were doing. And um, it, it wasn't much of an education, really. <laughs> okay. And on top of that as well, too, you said you got kicked out of house at the age of 16. So how, where did you go? What did you do? Well, I, I, I had been attending for something to do the Air Force cadets while I was in my teens, uh, which was local, and I could walk there. And we we supposed to learn things. We learned how to march, and we learned how to do Morse code and various other things which weren't that useful, but it was somewhere to go. And uh, so the topic came up. My father did actually get a chance to talk to me at one point and said, what do you plan to do after school? The first thing that came to my mind was, well, maybe join the Air Force. And he said, good idea. <laughs> that was uh, the extent of that conversation, I think. So in the end, I, I know my first job was in a factory because it's hard to explain this to people now, but because I'd had so little communication with my parents, even before my mother died, there, there wasn't much communication. We never really had much in the way of conversations. I didn't know anything about the world. I didn't even know how to go about looking for a job. I didn't know what the workplace was all about. I, there was so much I didn't know. It was like someone from Mars being suddenly dropped into the city and say, okay, you're on your own. So, But someone told me where to go to look for a job, and they pointed me to a factory in Birmingham. And I did work there for about three months. At a very low salary, but I didn't need much. I was sharing a room with another guy. And then someone said, okay, you should better me join the Air Force. So they let me read through this list of potential trades that you could have in the Air Force or jobs. And it, it was extensive. And I looked down the list. Most of the jobs meant nothing to me whatsoever. And I pointed to one and said, that's what I'll do. And they said, no, no. I think it was armaments fitter. And I think these are the people who strap the guns onto planes and make sure they had ammunition or something. And they said, no, no, no. The person said, no, no, you, that's not what you want to do. What about this one? Radar technician. And I said, whatever. <laughs> so I ended up, they pointed me to an apprenticeship in the Air Force, which was three years. It was like three years at a boarding school because it was classes all the time. You weren't actually doing a job. You were learning. And after three years, you graduated, and then you went to a, an Air Force base, and you fixed radar when it broke down. 
Uh, I think by that time, I'd already realized this wasn't my real natural field of expertise. In other words, I wasn't very good at it. And I knew I wasn't going to get much better. But somehow I survived. I don't know how I got, I don't know how I graduated. I have no idea. I don't know how I survived. I actually rose to the rank of sergeant. And I have no idea how that happened either. But anyway, I, I survived it. And it allowed me to grow up. It, it, it gave me a time when I could live my teenage years. I was, uh, we couldn't do very much while we were apprentices because they, they treated us like we were very immature kids in their teens, basically late teens. Uh, but when I got out of there, uh, when I was probably going at 20, then I started letting loose and be, being a teenager and drinking too much and all the things that teenagers do uh, and uh, falling around. But then I got that out of my system, took a few years, got that out of my system, and then started getting serious, I suppose, about life. Okay. Well, I, I just want to spend a moment just uh, reflecting on those three years that you were in this uh, school slash training program. What did that look like for you exactly? Do, were you able to find a uh, connection with your peers within that? Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah, I, I was. I, I always had one or two friends. We, we lived in billets, which uh, held 20 young guys. And that's for the whole three years. And we had to do a few of the regimental things like learning how to march and learning how to fire a weapon and stuff like that. But mostly it was school. It was learning electronics, uh, learning the theory and learning the practical, how to fix things. And for the first year, we were only allowed to go out, I think, Saturday nights. The rest of the time we were on the base. And things got progressively easier. We had to also wear uniform when we left the base. But as time went on, they relaxed the, some of the restrictions until by the third year, you, you, know, you felt you were really the big guy and you were able to go out in your own clothes. But again, it had to be a blazer and flannels. You, know? <laughs> you still had to get your hair cut sh- pretty short. But it was, it was fine. You, know? you, you had a bed and you had food and you, you were learning something. And you had buddies to go out with, and yeah, it, it was it was freedom. Okay, you go through that experience, and like you said, you you come out of it, and then you're you're in you're 20 years old, and you're uh, getting out some of your teenage yayas, rahs, whatever the yeah. term is, and uh, and then what are you doing for work at this time exactly? Once you finished the uh, the training, well, once you finish the training, you're posted to a radar station, and then. Mostly, it was sitting around and waiting for something to go wrong, uh, either on transmitters or receivers. Or you see in the movies where they're looking at this thing circulating on a screen, a CRT screen, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and little blips come up, and that's a plane, you know. So if those broke down, you had to fix those as well. And yeah, just a technician repairing things. Uh, but it was people often, I find, have. Uh, not a very accurate idea of what it was like. They say, well, you were the military. Oh, gosh, that must have been pretty. How long? And it's about 13 years altogether. And they say, oh, brutal. And I say, well, actually, it wasn't. We did have to put on a uniform to go to work. But then we went to work and we came back and we had lunch and we went to work. And, well, there's a lot of shift work, too. 
because uh, you have to run 24 hours a day, those things. But we, we had 42 paid holidays a year. 42? Yes. Whoa. And if you got sick, you always got paid. didn't matter how long you were sick. And they weren't going to fire you or anything. So you got, you got paid every day of the year, whatever, whether you, whatever you were doing. And, well, those 42 days holiday, you could extend because you'd take, you could take them more or less when you liked, as long as not too many people wanted to go at the same time. So you'd say, I think I'll have some leave, and you'd apply for leave in two weeks' time. I'll get five days, and I'll tack on the weekend before and the weekend after. So instead of five, it's now nine days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the end of the year, you'd think, holy moly, um, it's the, almost the end of the year. I've still got 16 days leave left. Do I really want to take it? You know, what will I do with it? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and it was, it, it was really very easy. There wasn't much discipline, you know. I remember you had to keep your hair cut reasonably short. Uh, but no, you were, you could do what you want pretty well in your own time. Okay. And were you living in your own private com- accommodation at this time or was it? Yeah, once, on- well, actually, once you graduated, I moved to a place where you shared a room. There was just four people in a room. And then once you got promotion, once you were a corporal, you got your own small room. And it was very small. And I, as I say, ended up as a sergeant where the room was substantially bigger. And uh, th- there was some nice benefits. While I was in the Shetland Isles, uh, there was a, somebody would come over to the morning cup of tea if you were on the morning shift and would knock on the door. Uh, Hi, Sarge, here's your tea. And put the tea on the bedside locker there for you, which you could drink before you got out of bed which was kind of nice. And then you'd just go over to breakfast and there was waiter service at breakfast. Well, at all meals, somebody, you'd you'd order what you wanted and they would bring it to the table. Uh, So it it wasn't bad. (laughs) This sounds pretty ideal, Gregory. Oh my gosh. Tons of vacation time. People bring you a tea first thing in the morning. Yeah. You get to be a sergeant. Uh, and so this, this experience went on, you said it was 13 years total, but I guess total. that includes the three years That's of right. the training. So you wind up having this career for 10 years and, uh, through previous conversations, you mentioned to me before that you were stationed in various different locations. Right. Where were those different locations? Well, the, the first one was it, on the East coast of England. And that was pretty nice because it was a beautiful location where the, a river ran down into the ocean and it was on sort of the point between the river and the ocean. And that was very nice. And I got myself a canoe and used to canoe around and it was a good place to walk. I wasn't into fishing then, but it could have been good. That was a very pleasant place. After that, I was posted to Malta, which is in the Mediterranean. And that was pretty nice too. Lots of sandy beaches there. And uh, yeah, it was lots of fun. After that, I came back to the same place in England. And then then I was sent up to Shetland Isles, which is very, very remote. I put that down to the fact that when I was in Malta, I, I wasn't very good. I, 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 well, I got a couple of charges laid for various couple of th- different things. Nothing too serious. This was a sort of punishment posting up to, to the Shetland Isles, I figured. Nobody wanted to go there. There was almost nothing there. Uh, but it was just eight, it was 18 months, which was a very long 18 months. But I survived it. 
And then I decided to go to Northern Ireland, which uh, was good and bad. I think it was a mistake. I, sh I would have been better in England again. Uh, Northern Ireland was, uh, I didn't know anything about it. I had met a number of Irish people that I really liked. And I thought, yeah, I think I might like to go to Ireland. Uh, I didn't do much research or any. And I didn't know anything about the sectarian problems there, which actually broke out while I was there. You know, some of the, the bombing and shootings and things like that. That started while I was there. So it was a religious country in the sense of you were either Catholic or Protestant, but you were something, and I wasn't. That, that didn't go against me that much, but it was very important to the, the Irish people living there. So I, I wasn't all that comfortable there. I was also in the sergeant's mess, and I was, I think, one of maybe two or th three sergeants who were single. By, by that time, I'm in my late 20s, and most people are married, and they're, not, they're living at, on the base, but in their own little house or off the base in a house. And I was there without many people to make friends with, or any, really. So I did what I could. But I had decided anyway that uh, I was going to leave. My, I had to join. To get an apprenticeship, you have to join until you're 30. Oh, wow, really? That's a requirement, yeah. Okay. Well, they were giving you three years of free education. Wow. Is the way they looked at it, so. So you knew as soon as education was over that you're like, okay, ten, next 10 years of my life, this is what I'm doing. That's right. Okay, I didn't know yeah. that part. Uh, before we continue, actually, I just want to touch on Northern Ireland for a minute because you mentioned that in Ireland that either you were a Catholic or Protestant and you just said you, you were neither. Hmm. And it sounds like that was... Uh, potentially a bit of an issue? No, actually, it, it didn't tend to be an issue between me and the local residents, but it was always an issue between them. And so you had to be careful. You know, Ireland has a, North and South has a great tradition of singing in pubs. You had to be careful what kind of song you sang. There were rebel songs and there were anti-rebel songs, I suppose, or loyalist songs. They call them loyalist, which was the Protestants. And I, I actually got a friend who lived there and his part-time job was as a manager of this folk group. And I used to go with him at weekends to pubs where this group that he managed would play. And I remember sitting there and they were playing on stage and then they started singing the wrong song. And there was a, a little sort of half balcony in this pub where people could sit up and they could look down at the, the group playing. And suddenly somebody up there threw a pint of beer over the band from up there. The band dropped all their instruments and rushed upstairs because they were going to beat the hell out of whoever did it if they could find out. I don't think they did find out who exactly who did it. Uh, but it got calmed down okay. But it, things could start just like that. Uh, you know, so you, you did have to be careful. Yeah, and then you also mentioned as well too, I have a, a vague understanding of the IRA situation within Ireland, but that's what you're referring to about the violence and the bombings. Yeah. I don't know how much you know about this, but the Protestants in the north of Ireland, which was still associated with Britain, part of the UK, there were two-thirds Protestants and one-third Catholic. And so if you were Protestant and there was any job going, and the unemployment there was higher than anywhere else in the UK, but if there was a job going you are far more likely to get the job 
if you're Protestant than if you're Catholic. If you needed uh, housing, people tended to be poorer. They couldn't afford their own housing, but there were rental houses, council houses. But if you're Protestant, you were more likely to get a house than if you're Catholic. So there was a lot of discrimination of one sort or another. Did you get a promotion? Well, usually the Protestant person got it, not the Catholic. Um, they went to different schools. Uh, they grew up hating each other. That they lived in different areas. Even within the city of Belfast, there was a, there were Protestant areas and Catholic areas, and they kept to themselves. They had their own pubs they went to. So Catholic kids on the way home from school would throw rocks at Protestant kids and vice versa, and that was the way people grew up. But things came to a head. I forget what actually was the trigger, but they came to a head while I was there, and bombs started to be set off. Pubs were bombed commonly. People would bomb a pub. People would get shot. People would get ambushed. And it, it got pretty nasty, but it wasn't all the time. It, and it was, it was strange. I remember being in Belfast, and I happened to be sleeping over at a girlfriend's place and hearing an explosion in the morning and then turning on the news. and They said this had happened on, I forget, maybe the Falls Road. It was a certain particular road. And I said, let's go over there and have a look, see what's going on. And then we went over, and it was only a couple of hours later, and we found, yes, there's a pub there with smoke coming out of the windows, and it's not on fire, but it's, you know, it's okay now. And there were women walking their babies up and down the street in strollers, and standing, chatting on the corner. And that was their life. You know, there were explosions, and you got used to it, and you carried on. Wow. <laughs> and so for yourself, were you able to normalize all this as well, too? Like that this was basically where you were living and what things were like? Or did it feel dangerous or tumultuous to you? Well, you say I was living, what was it, about 20 miles south of Belfast and just outside of a small town, mm. several miles outside. Uh, again, on the edge of the ocean. A lot of radar stations seem to be on the edge of the ocean. And it didn't really affect us, except in the sense of they decided at one point they were going to issue us with some guns. Not everybody, but if I was in charge of the radar shift of technicians, and they, I had to sign over a, a gun and some ammunition every time I went on shift, just in case the radar base was attacked, which was kind of interesting thinking about sort of how military things are organized or, or not organized because uh, I remember when they first decided, they decided in the evening, I was on evening shift, that they were going to issue guns. And so I was called into the uh, this office where the officer said, well, okay, you've got to sign a gun and 15 rounds of ammunition, whatever it was. And they said, okay, off you go and hand it back in at the end of your shift. And I said, okay, but one question, sir. Under what circumstances can I use this weapon? And he looked blank. And he said, um, I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, I, it would be good to know. <laughs> and, <laughs> so he, he said, I'll get back to you. <laughs> well, I don't think he got back to me that night because I had to go and I had to tell the guys on my shift something. And the thing about these places, it's on the edge of the ocean and between us and the rocky foreshore, there was a, 
a fence with a bit of barbed wire on the top, but obviously not impregnable. And outside of where we actually worked, um, there were these what we call radar heads, the radar units, you know, the things that spin or they nod up and down. Um, that's where the transmitter is. But you had to cross maybe 100 yards of pitch dark field to get to it. And I said to my guys, look, I don't have any instructions, but if anybody shoots at you, fire back. <laughs> so, <laughs> Seems reasonable. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, because they would have to take the gun with them if they went out there, obviously. So um, then, we, then we got instructions, which d- didn't help very much because, and they gave you it printed on a nice little piece of paper, which said, if you, you see anybody in a place or hear anybody and they think they shouldn't be there, say, halt, who goes there? And if there's no answer, you say it again, halt, who goes there? And if there's no answer, you say, halt, or I might fire. And <laughs> what, they, what they didn't say was, you're probably going to be dead by this time if they were <laughs> to kill you. Uh, but fortunately, we never had any trouble because I'm not sure what would have happened because those were the stupidest things that I ever saw. And uh, I think I actually said to my guys, you, you should use your intelligence if anything goes wrong. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Like I, I can imagine like a, there should be a whole subsection of uh, rules in there. <laughs> you say halt who goes there and then you get shot at and yeah. then this is what you do. But that's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. It it's was, funny yeah. that you remember the, uh, very the actual, funny. Yeah. The actual uh, <laughs> orders. Okay. So, uh, and you said that at this point you are approaching the age of 30. Is that mm. correct? Okay. And so, so what are you thinking at this time? Well, I'm thinking I don't want to stay in. And the reason was mainly that there was no challenge in it uh, is the big thing. And also I could see my life planned out until I retired. It's just going to be like this. It's going to be like the last 10 years for the next 25 years, perhaps. Mm. You could retire at 55. Uh, I think for a full pension, maybe 60. And I thought, I I don't want my life to be so predictable as that. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very easy. You know, it was an easy life. But I thought, no, I, I want more. There's more. I'm missing something. And so I said, no, I'm going to leave. What am I going to do? And so I, I asked, I, I didn't want to be a technician anymore, but I didn't have any other skills, didn't know what to do. I had no qualification. And I had a cousin in Canada who said, come over here. You may not be able to get a, a fancy fancy job, but the pay is much better. You're able to save money. And so, uh, and I'll sort of help you out for the first few weeks till you get settled. So I said, okay, I'm on my way. Had you been to Canada before? Never. Okay. That seems like a bit of a leap to uh, to go ahead it and was, do that. It was, but I had to do something and okay. I had to go somewhere. Okay. And I, didn't, I didn't really have a home, a home with family and friends around there that I could go back to. So, uh, yeah, so I came to Canada, managed to get a job um, in a factory uh, as an electrician. No, in a nickel mine, first of all, northern Ontario, uh, as an electrician, a mine electrician, uh, for which I was absolutely not qualified. How'd you get that job then? Well, I happened to be walking downtown thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And past a hotel, there was a sign outside saying, in here, we're interviewing today for jobs at International Nickel Company. And we're looking for the following people. And, you know, we're looking for um, mine electricians and carpenters and plumbers because they employ all kinds of people at a mine. 
And so I thought, electrician, maybe I could do that. So I walked in and they brought me in and uh, they said, okay, uh, th there's a circuit diagram on the table. Explain how that works. Oh. So I, I, I looked at it and I looked at it more closer and I thought, I've never seen this before, but I, I think I know how it works. And I actually was able to explain to them from when you switch it on, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And if this goes wrong, this is what... And they said, oh, you're hired. <laughs> and that was the interview. And I, I didn't I realize that. I thought, well, I'm, I must have charmed them. I must have looked so intelligent. What it was, I think, is that the turnover was so high in those little mining villages that they were just desperate for people. And if they looked as though you might work, they're going to snap you up and give you a chance. So that's what happened. And I got a job there. And I was there from summer until the winter was starting to come on. And I thought, I don't want to be in this little mining village all winter. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Also, you know, probably 500 young men and three young women. And <laughs> don't fancy my odds here. So I uh, got a job down in Hamilton, Ontario, in a factory, a factory electrician. I got that on the strength of being an electrician in the mine. They then assumed I was, could be a factory electrician, and I wasn't an electrician at all, of course. Yeah, so I did that for a little while. <laughs> okay, and so are you, uh, actually, you mentioned earlier that your cousin told you that the pay was better in Canada versus what it was in England. Did that turn out to be correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. When I went to the mine, uh, at that time, they had what they called bunkhouses. And these typically were things that were like three-story buildings and how many people, maybe they would hold 30 people or something like that and run by a family normally. And the deal was that it cost you a certain amount of money per week. I figured out. it wouldn't make it much sense these days to tell you how much. And you would get your room and all the food you could eat, which was true. Uh, as, as long as you kept eating, they had to keep bringing food out and putting it on the table. That was the deal. Okay. Plus, they'd make you a packed lunch to take to work. And so I, I couldn't believe how much money I could save. Also, there was nowhere to go. So you could save a lot of money that way. And uh, anyway, the, the pay was higher anyway in Canada. It was so much easier. At that time, things were a little different. So that by the time I actually, I actually started going to university in Canada, I was able to have my own apartment, my own car, an old car, but a car, and live quite well. Uh, I had a very small student loan and I had some savings and I, I worked in a pub as a waiter a couple of nights a week and I was able to support myself. <laughs> you couldn't have done that in England. <laughs> wow, really? Okay. Yeah. Did you ever have a car at all in England the whole time you were there? Or uh, no? Oh, yes, I had a car. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, no no. People in my class had cars, but then things started to get a little better. So you could buy a you could buy a ten year old car. You could afford that, which is usually what I had. And I I was always frugal. I grew up being frugal, so I saved. And I if I wanted something, I saved up for it. You know. Uh, you mentioned that you started going to university in there. Uh, how did that decision come about to attend university? It actually started when I was in that little mining village and looking around for things to pass my time. And somebody said, you know, you can actually get correspondence courses for free. And I said, oh, really? Uh, so how do you do that? So I found out. And at school, when I was at school, they hadn't been doing English literature. They just did English 
language, they call it, which was grammar. For some reason, at that time that I was there, they didn't do English literature. And I thought, I came from a home when we never had any books. Nobody ever read a book. Uh, nobody ever read to me or to themselves. And I started reading when I was in the Air Force, and I thought, I, I wish I knew what to read. You go into a library, and there's 30,000 books, and you have no idea where to begin. So I thought, maybe I should take a course. So I, I managed to take, I think, grade 13, English literature by correspondence while I was in the mining village. And I was working away at that very slow. It seemed, you know, you, you mail away your stuff and it comes back marked. And then, uh, anyway, it's, it's very slow. And then I moved down to Hamilton. I was still doing it. And I happened to be at a party and talking to the girlfriend of a friend of mine. And she said, why are you doing that? Why don't you go to university? And I said, university? I, I'm not qualified to go to university. How do you know? And I said, well, like in England, you had these things called O-level exams, and then you had A-levels, and you had to pass two A-levels and five O-levels, and then maybe you could go to university. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 it's different in Canada. You go and you take this adult student exam, and it's basically a math exam and an English exam, and it's not that hard. Why didn't you do it? So I said, oh, yeah, why not? And I thought, nah. I still didn't know anybody who in my family ever went to university. So I went and I did it. And the next thing was, oh, yeah, you passed. Why don't you come and decide what courses you want to take? There's something wrong here. They don't know how stupid I am. But anyway, they'll find out. And um, so I had to choose. And I, I was just going to do, I wasn't going to put all my eggs in one basket. So I kept my job. And I did evening courses at the university. And I went to, and I booked, I said, I want to do English I guess it's English A1 or whatever they call it, right? First year English. And they said, yeah, what other course? And I said, I hadn't thought of another course. Well, you've got to come here two evenings a week. And so you can do one course in one hour, but you could also do another course and do two hours. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. What else have you got? And they showed me a list and I said, philosophy sounds interesting. And so I signed up for philosophy in English. And I thought, well, I don't, where, don't know where this is going. But anyway, I passed. I, I passed reasonably well at the end of the term. So I thought, yeah, I'll sign up for another couple of courses. So anyway, it went on like that for a year. And then I, I had my first year of university part-time. And then I thought, this is good, but it's kind of a little slow. Why don't I quit my job and go full-time? Which is what I did. And I had a bit of savings, as I said. So... I, I went back to university, got my job in a pub as a waiter, not much money, but some tips, and stayed there. And after, actually, I think after the, by the second year, I was looking around and thinking, you know what? This is different from England. I walk into the supermarket, and chances are the person doing the checkout has a BA in something. And I thought, this is not like England at all. And I thought, you know, Maybe I should aim a bit higher if I can. My marks are pretty good. Maybe I'll do an honours and I'll, I'll have that little step up above some people, perhaps, and give myself a better chance of getting a job. Whatever that looks like, I had no idea what I was going to do with this degree at all, if anything. So then I, I was getting into my, I guess, fourth year, because it's, now it's an honours degree. And so people were saying, well, are you going to do your master's? I thought, hmm, 
actually, lots of people have got honors degrees too. Maybe I should do a master's. <laughs> I signed up to do my master's degree and uh, ended up getting that. But after that, I, I'd had enough after that of academia. And so I left and got a job teaching. Okay. So just to, because uh, that's a lot of years, but you said that you kept getting more and more education. So I would assume you really enjoyed it while you were you were there. I enjoyed the first year an awful lot because I was exposed to so much of, I, I did, um, of course, in English courses, but I also did philosophy and psychology, uh, both of which I, I had some interest in. And I, I learned so much that I, that I had no idea this knowledge even existed. And I was able to relate some of it to my life. And I kept doing that as much as I could throughout. But the longer you are in in a program, the more required courses they are and the less chance you get to take these other courses outside of English literature. Mm. And so as time went on, I actually enjoyed it less in some ways, which was a pity. And of course, with English literature... It is very hard if you take it seriously, which I, I did. I, I, I learned that I took it far more seriously than a lot of the younger students did, and they managed to get through. But I would try to read everything I was assigned. I would write every essay, and I would, in fact, I rewrote every essay I ever did at least twice, and editing it as I went. And it was an awful lot of work, because there were a lot of essays a lot of essays and a lot of reading and a lot of lectures. And it was very hard work, <laughs> but I don't regret it. I'm curious as well, too, is that because your whole world changed by making this decision and totally. that uh, you are surrounded by a completely different peer group at this point compared to what was mm. going on when you were right. in the military, compared yes. to what was going on with your first yes. jobs in Canada. How did that impact you having that uh, difference of uh, a setting and the different kind of people that you were socializing with? Well, of course, I actually started full-time university. I was probably 34, and most of the other students would be 10 years younger. And one of the, the my misapprehensions was I had thought university would be not only a place where you went to learn and had a thirst for knowledge, but also uh, which would, would be densely political. And I found, in fact, the opposite was true on both of those counts in those days, in at least at the university I was at, that people seemed to want to know just what do I have to do to get that piece of paper to say I've got a degree and, get it, and then I can get a job. What's right. the minimum I have to do to get, do that? And the other thing was, there was no politics. The only politics, which, as you might expect, uh, was in the French department. And, and then it wasn't national politics uh, or even provincial. It was the fact that they didn't like a lot of their professors who they thought were old and decrepit and boring and weren't very good teachers, which I totally believe was true because I felt the same about the English department, except nobody in the English department felt like protesting against it. <laughs> And, but the, 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 the French department did to the extent that they had a strike and they, they had dozens of policemen and patrol cars that, you know, cruisers down there surrounding the university. I don't know what they were expecting, uh, but uh, it was for about a week or so, it was uh, quite interesting. <laughs> and I admired those French students. 
Yeah, they uh, they have a history of, uh, of yeah. standing up for what they believe in. And, right. and sorry, what university was this again? Uh, this was McMaster, yeah, okay, at Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, very famous school. And and so, like, am I am I hearing this correctly that that uh, it it was not necessarily what was going on around the school that you were finding like inspiration was? It was like basically the the knowledge that you were receiving. It was from, the knowledge yeah. that I was getting. Yeah. Yes, it was. What was really captivating about English literature for you? What were you finding within that? Because it, it sounds like the motivation was, okay, uh, everybody has a BA, so let's go for my honors, then let's go for my master's, and then like pursuing an opportunity for yourself to possibly have a leg up on the competition after school is done to have uh, better job choices. But within doing this, the work at school, and you said that it was labor intensive and it got... <laughs> and not quite as enjoyable as it was in the beginning. But what was the spark that was still within you during those years that uh, that kept you interested about English lit in particular? Uh, well, um, some of it I didn't find interesting. You know, you had to do various periods in English literature, and some was obviously, I think everybody has this. Parts of it are more interesting than others. But occasionally you'd come across a period or uh, some writers, uh, some poets, that really were inspirational. Do you know John Donne, uh, the poet? Interesting person. I, uh, there are people throughout history I would like to have known and uh, had dinner with. And John Donne is one of them, who in his early life uh, and his early work, he wrote a, a, a lot of what we love poems and seduction poems, they call them. But there was a tradition of seduction poems. You know, life is short. Why don't we hop in the sack right now? Sort of poems. <laughs> yeah. And he did a lot of that stuff. And he's very witty. In fact, some of the more, uh, what would you call them, regular poets who still believed in writing uh, about nymphs, uh, you know, nymphs trotting, you know, dancing through the woods in iambic pentameter, you know, would criticize John Donne because he didn't stick to it. He, he used it, but he didn't stick to it. And he would have strange rhymes and, you know, strange use of language that they wouldn't have accepted. But I, I, I loved him. But partway through his life, probably as it went towards the end, he got religious. And I think he became, he actually became the Dean of St. Paul's in London and became totally religious. And all his poetry was religious poetry after that, because he, he saw the end coming and I think he probably was actually a believer and he, he wanted to go up there, not down there. Yeah. So <laughs> he wrote all this wonderful poetry to God. Please, God, I know I was a bad boy for the first, you know, 40 years of my life, but here I am. <laughs> you got, we, we all got to make changes in our life. That's we all, right. We all got to grow up at so, some point. Yeah, I could relate to him. And who else? Then more modern ones. James Joyce. Not, well, not him. Um, yeah, James Joyce to some extent. Some of the Irish poets I enjoyed, uh, which is another reason why for, you know, I was reading them before I actually went to university. Okay. I, I read, I started reading all kinds of stuff <laughs> I could get my hands on. And you were saying as well too earlier that it, within the household that you grew up in, nobody read books or nobody no. read books to you. No. And so it sounds like this whole world opened up to you mm -hmm. once you discovered mm -hmm. literature. Yeah. Yeah. It did. Yeah. But that kept going for a long time, obviously, it right? Did. Yeah. Yes. 
And so you 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 reach the end of the schooling where you get your master's. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a lot of work, Gregory. It was. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and then uh what do you what do you choose to do at this point? What uh what happens well, then? I'm, I the first it took me two years to get my master's. I thought I'd do it in a year, which everybody does, but in that and I know some people actually do. But in those days, you had to do three courses, and each course required, I think, at least one major essay, and also basically another essay which you had to read in the class of grad students and take any questions or criticism on it. So you had to do that, plus a, a long essay, plus a dissertation. And not many people managed to get through the whole thing in, in a year. But after the first year, I don't think I got funding. I got funding as a teaching assistant for the first year of that, but I don't think I did it the second year. I can't remember. But anyway, I decided I'd better start thinking about what kind of job I might be able to get. What With a degree in English literature, what do people do? I had no idea. Until I was talking to someone who said, huh, go down to this place, downtown Hamilton, and this is where you go and ask for someone called Monica. And talk to her. What do they do? Well, they teach English as a second language. So I said, I've got no teaching qualification. Doesn't matter. You don't have to have one. <laughs> do it. So I did. And she was a lovely woman. And she gave me a chance. She said, Well, sit in a few classes and see what you think. Is it something you think you could do? Wouldn't you would like to do? So I did. And I thought, wow, yeah, I would love to do this. The the class was so motivated. They were all new immigrants pretty well. They wanted to learn English. Obviously, it was in their interest to learn English. They were from all parts of the globe. And to converse in the class, they had to talk English to each other. Mostly, they didn't speak each other's language. So um, they were very motivated students. They were a lot of fun. You could have fun with them. Uh, You could learn about their country. Uh, It was wonderful. So I thought, yeah, so I got a job. Okay. And so like all the things you mentioned actually sound really great and sounds mm. like they resonated with you. So <clears throat> you, you have this experience where you like fall into this position of getting this job and how long were you an ESL teacher for? Oh, I, I'm trying to think how long, not that many years actually, because I met someone, uh, from Ireland <laughs> and, uh, who was on a student visa and decided to go back to Ireland with this person. They were doing their masters at that time and then were going on to do their phd um so i went back to ireland and just that they also at about that time inherited a 68 acre farm uh which didn't mean much to me then but now it does knowing that a 68 acre farm with uh one leaky stone barn no fencing uh one Ancient cottage, which has not been used by anybody in the last 20 years except pigs, uh, and uh, needing drainage, uh, no equipment. But anyway, it seemed like a good idea to start farming that land. (laughs) Probably a terrible idea, because five years, about five and a half years of that, you know, was totally exhausting, because I was also trying to teach at a local community college, not ESL. So I was working full-time and trying to farm full-time. And farming is a full-time job. Of course it is. And, so, and wait, how old are you at this point? <laughs> what, what age are you at here? Oh, probably, uh, how old would be? 
30, 40-ish okay. probably, okay. thereabouts. Okay. So I had to fence and cross fence 68 acres and, you know, learn how to ride the tractor and cut hay and all those things and milk goats, got some goats and got some cattle. And, uh, <laughs> that sounds like an interesting turn of events. And did, did you enjoy this five and a half years? or what? Actually, in many ways I did. It was too much and it got more and more as time went on. I got more and more tired mm -hmm. and the work didn't seem to decrease. Um, but I learned so much. I never ever had imagined myself doing farming and uh, learning about cattle or hay or cutting hay or the quality of hay or uh, goats. Uh, how do you milk goats? What are the quality of the milk in goats? And um, how do you get the most milk from goats? And we were doing everything. We weren't factory farming. Uh, so uh, the, it was all grazing in the summer. We had to put the animals in mostly in the winter because it was too wet. The land was too wet. Okay. It wouldn't be good for the animals or the land. Um, so, But then we had to build a big cubicle house, we called it, where the cattle could go in. And then we had this leaky barn, <clears throat> the leaky barn, which I fixed up, the fixed the roof at least. And we could, I built a milking parlor inside there and pens where they could have their kids, the goats, and stuff like that. So I, I learned a lot. I, I just learned so much. Uh, and I, I don't never regret when I learn something new like that. Sure. How to milk a goat. <laughs> you weren't able well, just to punch that into YouTube you, and get you the answer. You stand at one end, and at the other end is usually a bucket with some grain in it. You know, not too much because you don't want to feed them too much grain, but enough of it that it'll keep their interest while you're milking them at the other end. Okay. Mm. All right. Little little uh, <laughs> metaphorical carrot on a stick there uh, right. for the goat. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting. Like when I do these uh, interviews, sometimes I just think, oh, my gosh, like you know, we could talk for hours about like five and a half years of running a farm. <laughs> right. Uh, and like all the work that you mentioned, I'm sure is like, you know, nowhere near all of what you did, but you do this for five and a half years. And, and, uh, at the same time you're, you're teaching in a community college. You said. Mm -hmm. And then what happens after the end of those five and a half years? Well, I got very tired. And the other thing that had happened is that my partner at the time had intended to finish the PhD in Ireland by doing interviews in Ireland and then doing something with those interviews and writing a book. So that time I said, look, I'm, I'm really exhausted. I don't know how long I can keep this up. The farm, we decided the farm was too big for us. We didn't necessarily want to do cattle anymore. Maybe the goats would be enough. We need a smaller farm if we can find one, but really I, the change, simply the changeover is going to be too exhausting. So why don't we go back to Canada I can get a job, probably teaching ESL, and uh, you can finish your PhD, and we can save some money, because it is easy to save money. And then we can come back to Ireland after a few years, and then start out again. Well, we came back to Canada, but we never did go back to Ireland, of course. And she ended up getting a PhD, and uh, I went back to teaching. I think I taught life skills for a while. I think I did do a bit of ESL teaching, but I did various kinds of teaching. And then I was teaching English upgrading. It was my final few years of 
upgrading students who wanted to go to community college, but their skills weren't quite good enough, so they needed a bit of a boost. So that was what I did, what we did in our program. And that was good. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. And, um, yeah, so then I came to Pender. Okay, and so <laughs> then this uh, this fateful trip happens uh, somewhere along the way here where you wind up coming to Pender Islands and you're on a bicycle and somebody stops and asks you if you need some help and it sounds like a very pivotal moment. And then you uh, you, you wind up having an experience where you uh, you move to Pender. So then, uh, yeah, maybe we could get into the, the Pender years a little bit here and, and talk about some of the experiences you've, uh, you've had on the island. Yeah, so decided to buy a piece of land. I said, look, let's buy, and properties were fairly cheap then. Let's buy something which has somewhere we can, it doesn't matter what it's like, some kind of building where we can spend a few months, maybe in the summer, a couple of months, because uh, it's lovely here. And I'm going to be teaching in uh, Toronto which means I will have summers off, so can come out. And she was still working on the PhD, and I said, after you've done that, you may get a job teaching too. You'll have the summers off. So let's, you know, let's buy a place. And before we left on that first visit, we had made an offer on a place, which was five, five acres of land. We looked for something with a bit of land for some reason, forget why. And the, the house wasn't much of a house. It had been, I think somebody told me, the, the original lumber yard, uh, but it had living, part of it had been converted to living quarters plus a huge workshop. And so then we went back to Toronto and, oh, in the meantime, she, she had converted a PhD. I think she just about finished it. And it had been accepted to be published as a book. It won this prize where you get you get it published as a book if you win the prize. So it did, and which I think helped her because someone said, did you, you know, there's a job come up on the West Coast and it was on Vancouver Island and why don't you apply for it? And she did. And I think partly on the strength of this book that she published, she got accepted, uh, she got the job. So I said, well, what are we waiting for? Let's just go and live there. And we did. And, well, what about my job? Well, I got leave of absence from my job, which I, I think kept on for two years, and at least until somebody said, who is this guy? You know, there was a new boss and said, who's this guy? I've never seen him. And I said, no, no, he's on the West Coast. What's he doing there? <laughs> so I wasn't getting paid, but they, they, they were replacing me with you know, sessional teachers. So I decided, okay, here's a solution. I'll come back for the fall semester each year. So. September, end of October, uh, end of August till Christmas, I'll be here, short semester, and that'll give me some extra money, which is nice. And we still, I hadn't had a chance to sell the house there, so I still had the house. And one of the things I did, not the first year, but I think the second year, is I converted the basement of that house into a very small, a kind, of, kind of man cave, if you like, a small living quarters. It was a bedroom and a living room and a tiny, tiny kitchenette and a toilet. And I rented the upper part of the house, which was a four-bedroom house. So that was an income from that. And also, when I went back, I had somewhere to stay. It wasn't costing me any money, basically. So I did that for a number of years, just going back for like four months, I suppose. And that worked out very well for a while. And then, eventually, I just decided to retire and 
keep it up and stay here full time. So you uh, you retire in the late nineties, and then you you come to live on Pender full time in the yep. yeah. So we had five acres, and then uh, yeah. So we started raising sheep, and the next thing was I uh, for some reason I got donkeys. I'm not. I think maybe the donkeys came first because I wanted something to graze the grass, and. I fell in love with donkeys at that point. I'd never owned a donkey or thought of owning a donkey. Now, I, I, thought, I should have thought of it a lot sooner. They're lovely animals. I wish everybody could enjoy donkeys as much. They're so affectionate and intelligent. People think they're stupid. They're not stupid. Really? Okay. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> if, I, I actually didn't know donkeys were intelligent. Okay. L- let me run this by you. Okay. If something bad happens on the road with a horse, what's it going to do? It's going to bolt. And if you happen to be riding that horse, you, you could be in trouble. If something happens on the road with a donkey, it will freeze. I, I've been with a donkey going along the road. I used to have a little donkey trap, which I used to ride along Port Washington Road. No way, really? Yeah. Wow, okay. If a donkey saw some, a, a new patch on the road of black tar, yeah. that would look to a donkey very much like a hole in the road. And the donkey would come to an abrupt halt, and you would look, and you'd say, what, what, what's going on? And then you'd realize what it was. So if the donkey ever did that, you'd look. Maybe it was a new stop sign. That shouldn't be there. The donkey was deciding, no, no, I'm not going past that. That shouldn't be there. That's intelligence. Huh? I, if I think there's any doubt, I'm like, a horse might freak and jump the, the other way if it <laughs> saw it. Not a donkey. It doesn't freak. You know? So <laughs> they are very smart. Okay. I had to break up a fight between... We had two donkeys, neither of which was fixed, and one of them was in a stable with a low door, which he had never jumped out of, and he was a little guy. And I walked past outside with the other male donkey, and this one leaped over and attacked the first one. And if you see two male donkeys fight, you lose any idea that donkeys are always very quiet and gentle. They were tearing the strips off each other with their teeth. And I was trying to, I was on my own, trying to hold them apart. I had a halter on one, but not on the other. I'm trying to fend one off, holding the other. And one of them, as they were biting each other, grabbed my arm in its teeth. And I said, what are you doing? And it sort of stopped and immediately released my arm. Wow. And then <laughs> That's what that, it didn't want to hurt me, yeah. you know, but he wanted to kill the other donkey. But, but they are very intelligent. They're very gentle. And they love, they love being petted. They'll follow you around the field to be petted. They are just such lovely animals. And I hate the way they're treated in a lot of parts of the world. Um, but, but they are. If you've got a few acres, I mean, of course you have to pay attention. Like any other pet, they need attention. They don't like to be lonely. Uh, they like to get fed regularly, and they like you to come and pet them and scratch them, just like a dog. You know, in many ways, I like that. They'll fight each other for attention. Uh, <laughs> they'll push each other out of the way so that you can, you'll scratch them. So they're lovely. But anyway, we, we had donkeys and we had sheep, which I wouldn't do anymore. I didn't like what came inevitably at the end of a lamb's life, which is a fairly short life. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's what I was doing. And again, fencing and drainage and stuff like that. So then, 
had stopped. Uh, that relationship ended, actually. So then uh, a new one started, actually, shortly after. <laughs> okay, and so uh, a new relationship starts, and then um, and and you mentioned at the very beginning of the uh, the episode that uh, your uh, wife uh, Julia, mm-hmm. uh, who you're you're with today, a new relationship starts with her, and then I guess like a new uh, a new phase of life mm-hmm. uh, and new new things wind up happening in your life. So with that relationship and with the time on Pender, what sort of things did you uh, get involved with in the community during your time here, and uh, and um, how have you been spending your time? Well, off and on through life, I'd often thought I'd, I'd like to sort of do some acting. And I'm Pender, of course, who's was a, a theater group. So I went along there and I managed, I think, to find a small part in a play. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. Being on stage is fun. And in fact, I, I was, I don't know if it was the first play I was in, but it, it was Twelfth Night. and it was done outdoors. I don't know if you were here then when that was put on. I was not. Okay, on yeah. South Pender, on somebody's, basically their front lawn, which was terraced, so people could sit up on one of the terraces, and the set was down below on a flat area. And I had, I think, two small parts. And, yeah, the whole thing was fun. And, again, I was learning a lot. How does theater work? You know, what does a director do? I'd always wondered what a director does. I thought, well, why don't actors, they've got a script, then why don't they just get up on stage and do their stuff? Why do they need someone to tell them how to do it? Well, it became very clear to me why you need a director. And anyway, at the the, the end of that play, one of the things they did was they had everybody exit on this path through the woods to the road, which was a couple of hundred yards. And they said, the director said, look, I want the actors to go and stand along this path and, you know, say hi to the people as they leave. And I thought, that's a lovely idea. And Julia says, I don't remember it, but she says she... <laughs> I can't believe I didn't remember her, but she said... But all people were coming and coming. And she, she, she liked the part I played. I was a priest, and, and it was a very, very small part. But she said, oh, something about that priest was really cute. So, but anyway... She came along, and uh, I was just shaking people's hands. Oh, I enjoyed the play. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And then the next day, I had to go to the ferry to meet someone coming off the ferry. And uh, somebody walked up behind me and said, hi. And it was Julia. And it was a very odd experience because by that time, I mean, gosh, how old am I at that time? 60. And... I turn around and there's this very beautiful woman walking toward me with a big smile on her face, say, you know, saying, hi. And we were the only two people there waiting. And we got into conversation. And I thought, well, I don't know, we're getting on pretty well. I know. Um, so I'm not going to let this opportunity pass. May, you know, may never get another one. So I said, how'd you like to come for coffee tomorrow? And she said, sure. Wow. So then we went out separate ways, and um, she said, well, it'll have to be early because my friend is coming over to spend the day, and I'm only visiting, and then I'm leaving tomorrow afternoon. Uh, so it'll have to be early in the morning, I guess, because I have to spend time with my friend. And so I said, fine. And she gave me a number, and then it occurred to me, my goodness, coffee, you know, uh, after 15 minutes, she might say, oh, well, that was very nice. Thank you very much, and stand up and leave. So I thought, I need more time. 
than that to somehow really get into a good conversation. So I, I phoned and said, how do you fancy a walk instead? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I had it planned out. I was going to do the whole loop around, you know, Clam Bay Road, and, you know, which was going to take probably uh, an hour or something. So that, uh, that's what happened. And it went from there. And it didn't, wasn't smooth because at first she wasn't going to have a relationship. The friends, yes. No, relationship, no. So I said, okay, I like you. We'll be friends. Uh, and then it carried on that way for a few months. And then he wasn't friends anymore. It was, yeah. Yeah, and then and then we find ourselves all the way to today, and you guys have uh, have done a lot in terms of what you were involved with with theater, like uh, where is well, how that, that you, was it. Because yeah. the next play that I did, uh, I won't mention the play, but a lot of the lines didn't make any sense to me, and I, I was given this role, and I said I don't. I was saying to Julie, who's helping me to learn my lines, I said I don't even know how to read that line it doesn't seem to make any sense in the context and then she looked and she said well why don't you try saying it in this way or that way and i did and it worked well and i wasn't getting that from the actual director at all i wasn't getting that kind of help so this went on and i said well what here i've got to enter and approach this person in a sort of aggressive way but not too aggressive like what does that look like, do you think? And she said, well, try it. And then she said, no, no, try this instead. And I did it. And I said, yeah, that feels right. And I said, you know what? You should be directing a play. And she had never thought of directing. And so we talked about it. And and then she said, yeah, I think I am going to direct a play. And she joined the group. And the next thing was she was directing a play. And which you were in, I think. (laughs) The very first play. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, so it went on, and she directed a number of plays after that. And yeah, it was uh, yeah, it, it was good. She's the best. Still, I still think she's the best director I've worked with. And so that that lasted a few years, and we did that. COVID came along, of course, ruined everything. Yeah, temporarily stopped <laughs> everything for a while, <laughs> up and running. But then we got involved in other things. Well, you know, even while COVID was happening which was also in some ways a kind of performance because it was being an activist and that requires yeah, a certain performance. Well, let's let's end off on that note about the activism that you have been involved with in uh in you know this stage in your life right now. Um what sort of activism have you been doing and why do you feel like it's important? Well, environmental of one sort or another. Uh this is the big issue of the day. There are still lots of people who ignore it even if they accept that it's happening but it it is crucial it is is the big one so the first thing that we did we decided we were going to go over when they were protesting the trans mountain pipeline uh we'll go over to burnaby and join the protests and uh in fact we decided uh, and they were saying when you come let us know if because it's important are you willing to be arrested or not and uh so we said Yes, yeah, we we could do that. So we went over there, and on the way, we met someone else from Pender Island, and the three of us ended up being there together on Burnaby Mountain, and we taped ourselves to the the gates there and blocked the gates. And there were lots of protesters and lots of RCMP officers, and uh, we duly got arrested. 
And then we started to meet other people who were interested in being activists. And we formed a group. And we called it our bubble. Yeah, you know, for the pandemic, people had their little bubbles where they felt comfortable with people uh, because to be totally isolated was just too much. So uh, we would have meetings at our house mostly of this group, which is still running, and decide what we were going to do. And part of it was protesting and part of it was sort of educational within the community. So we would organize uh, things uh, at the Anglican Hall, perhaps, or the the, uh, the other hall, where we would, again, this is where the performance comes in. We would write a, a song, a protest song, and we would dress up and be a little ridiculous, I suppose, because we decided we don't, didn't want to give a hard message, you know, you should do this and you shouldn't do that, and why aren't you doing so-and-so? We wanted it to be fun, but learning. So typically we would do some sort of shtick thing where we'd sing a song and and dance or march or or make fools of ourselves generally and try to be funny. And we'd also have a, a group of speakers who knew what they were doing, people like Misty, for example. And they would talk. We would have a short movie, not too long, 20-minute movie. The speakers get, would get up. That You could ask questions. Uh, and I, I asked stuff, and then we would do something like a letter writing, and we'd have an issue, and we printed up a lot of stuff which explained how to write letters. People don't write letters anymore. You know, <laughs> people don't know how to write letters anymore. Nobody writes letters, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah do emails and stuff. But we had an instruction thing and examples on on letters. Uh, we had talking points. We had the addresses of ministers. It was all laid out there. And I thought, I still don't know if it's going to work. After all the talks and the entertainment and the movie, people just want to say, I'm going to get home and turn on the TV. Well, they didn't. Whole bunches stayed and wrote letters. And it was amazing. Really? Okay. Yeah. Cool. I looked around, there's all people everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's something beautiful about yeah. putting pen to paper. So, there yeah, there maybe, is. Yeah. They enjoyed it. And like we said, well, we'll post them for you. You know, don't worry about that. Even though we can buy, some say, no, no, I want to finish this at home. I want to post it myself. So, <laughs> but um, it was good. So we did that. A few, and then again, you know, COVID dampened that down as well, having a lot of people in one space. Sure. But we still did some things and still do. But it's the protests, Ferry Creek protests now have basically shut down. Trans Mountain Pipeline. Well, the, I, recently some First Nations people got arrested, uh, but mo for the most part that has been closed down. They also started increasing the punishments for that, which is uh, a terrible thing. For, for people now who may have no previous record, engaging in nonviolent protests can get a month in jail. Wow. And... You don't get that for a common assault if you're drunk on a Saturday night, mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, why are they throwing peaceful protesters in jail? So there's a lot of bad feeling there, I think, about the authorities seeming to work for corporations rather than people of the environment. I mean, we're not doing it for ourselves. The activists are doing it for the environment, which means everybody. And, yeah, uh, so it's sad to see this stuff happening.
but it's been something which is ongoing. Again, it's one of those things, I suppose it's a bit less fun now because being arrested is much more uh, going to jail. We've talked to people who've gone to jail. It's not fun. Right, right. And the other part of it, and I wouldn't even mind that, but it doesn't get much publicity. In the mainstream media, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find when somebody is sent to jail for protesting. Hmm. Uh, and what is the point if it's invisible? Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, yeah. yeah, it needs to be visible. That's that's why people do go out and demonstrate and block streets and, and stuff like that. They want to be visible. Yeah, we prefer to to block access to the roads on on Burnaby Mountain for the pipeline company, and it was only disrupting them and some of the workers, obviously, mm-hmm. but minimal. Not like blocking a road in downtown Victoria. Which, yeah, I think, I have mixed feelings about. I, I don't like the way that disrupts a lot of people's lives, and some people are doing important things like taking relatives to hospital. Uh, I don't like that. On the other hand, how do you get people's attention? Mm-hmm. I don't know how you get the attention about something so serious as climate change. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of different ways to do it, but ultimately, what it boils down to is that. Uh having the desire to take some action and, and to do something like whether it be speak about this, you know, like your feelings about this in this podcast interview, or more importantly, get on a ferry and go all the way to Burnaby and uh, put yourself in a vulnerable position to be uh, arrested for doing something they believe in is, uh, is great. But um, yeah. And, and, and what you mentioned as well too, about doing performance pieces and using your creativity mm. to uh, inspire people and cause people to uh, question and think a little bit and just change, change the thinking in someone's mind mm. briefly, just to allow the opportunity for something else to, to come That's into right. play. Cause but, you know, so a lot of people think the, uh, what they'd call us maybe tree huggers. Some people even call us extremists, which I don't understand at all, but, the thing is, sometimes people like environmentalists can seem very earnest, very dour, very serious. Mm-hmm. And who wants to be part of a group that's taking life so damn seriously? And so you have to show a human side, a funny side, a playful side, yeah. and say, no, you know, part of this is a fun. It, it is. It's serious, but it's also fun. And you're also working with a really good group of people. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Thank I you know, thanks for taking an interest in that issue and like, you know, putting your freedom on the line, you know, essentially for uh, you know, like uh circumstances that you you believe are are worth fighting for. I think that it's uh it's pretty cool. Like I know the the story about you and Julia and the other person at Pender you went with going there and uh yeah, it's uh, it's 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 inspiring. It's great. It's nice to see as well too. Um, I think we're going to uh, wrap this up pretty quick because we were going a little over time here. Yeah. But I just want to say it's kind of amazing, right? We're like talking about from activism to acting <laughs> to the military to McMasters, right? Like all these uh, experiences you've had in your life. And uh, is there anything that you didn't share today that you want to end off by sharing with people who are listening about uh, your life? Well, when you said what you just did, it reminded me of, of something that occurs to me so often is that I've learned so much doing different things. And some of it was 
joy to do, and some of it was tedious, and some of it was just unpleasant. But whatever I did, I learned something from it, whether it was working in a nickel mine or a factory or uh, helping a heifer carve out in the field in the rain. Uh, you always learn something, and your life gets richer. To the joy of learning. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I really got that from you, like during this interview as well, too, because mm. like this—that was such a reoccurring theme mm -hmm. of what you talked about—is that learning. And I think I think that's so key to remember, you know, because mm. if we shut off that passion for learning, mm. whew, where are we at then, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's a great way to end off with uh, speaking about your desire to uh, to continue to learn through your lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming in, Gregory. I hope you enjoyed that. Gregory is a pretty wonderful guy. And yeah, that was a good one. I want to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music to this podcast. And again, if you're at all interested in doing a personalized audio memoir, you can reach out to me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. The information for that is in the show notes. And of course, this podcast wouldn't happen if nobody was listening. So thank you for listening. And until next time.